This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Until this past year, the Tavistock Gender Identity Development Service was the UK's only center for treating children suffering from gender dysphoria. In March 2022, an independent report commissioned by Britain's National Health Service found that the type of care provided at Tavistock was, quote, not safe or viable as a long-term option for the care of young people with gender-related distress. It also found that the center had not used customary control measures that are typically in place when new treatments are introduced, nor had the center collected consistent data on its patients and treatments. Following the report, the National Health Service decided to close the Tavistock Center and find a new model of care for gender-questioning young people. Hannah Barnes is an investigations producer at Newsnight, one of the BBC's flagship television news programs. And she writes about what happened at Tavistock in her new book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. And she joins us today from London. Hannah Barnes, welcome to On Point. Thank you so much for having me. So when the Gender Identity Development Clinic was first opened in London in 1989, what was its original mission? Its original mission was to provide a space for a very small group of very distressed children and young people to talk about the difficulties they might be having with their gender. So originally it opened at another London hospital, but really... In those early years, we were talking a couple of handfuls of of young people each year. I think actually there were only two in the first year. And it provided a space for young people and their families to go and talk about what they were going through. The idea was always that it wouldn't aim to change a young person's gender identity, but would help them tolerate the distress they were experiencing, tell them that they weren't alone, that there was nothing wrong with them, sort of break down stigmas, really provide a a safe space, if you like, and predominantly provide talking therapies for this very small number, but albeit some of them very distressed children. Mm. That's why in the book you emphasised that its original mission was to support gender identity development versus Mm -hmm. change. Exactly, exactly. And that that aim continued through to the present day. Okay. But so then um, how what how small of a of a percentage of of young people are we talking about that were seen at uh, at the service in the early days? It's difficult to know in terms of percentage of the population, but we're talking, you know, a handful of children per annum that that were referred out of millions of of young people here in the UK. And at that time, the founder of the clinic, uh, a a psychiatrist called Domenico Dicelli, he would often talk to the press as we went into the 1990s saying that the vast majority of these young people would come through their period of gender-related distress um, and a small minority would indeed transition and and, and live their lives as trans adults. Okay. So then um, uh, at a pro- around approximately 2005, if I remember correctly from your book, there was a, an internal audit done uh, by the, the, the Gender Service Center there. What did that internal audit find? So there are two things here. There, there was a report into the service in 2005. Oh. There was also an audit carried out in about 2000. So okay. I can talk briefly about both of them if that's helpful. So in 2000, the 
by this point, the service had moved to its current home, the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust. And really, there was a request made that the trust wanted to learn a bit more about these young people that the trust was seeing. What other difficulties might they be experiencing? How did they arrive at the clinic? What, what was happening to them, basically? So a, a group, including Domenico de Cheli, um, they audited the first 124 young people that had gone through, so from 1989 to 2000, and they excluded the, the very current patients. And that showed that the vast majority of these young people absolutely were experiencing distress around their gender, but actually so much else besides uh, a large, very large proportion had been in care, so not living with their their parents or their immediate family. That was up to a quarter. A large proportion had experienced uh, abuse, either physical or sexual. Um, They experienced depression, anxiety, all sorts of things. Um, And what they found was that only a very small proportion didn't have any other difficulties alongside their gender distress. But I think what you were talking about in 2005 was that some concerns were being raised at that point within the service about how it was functioning. And although puberty blockers, as we know them colloquially, were available at that point, a young person had to be 16 here at that point. But there was still concern that some people were going forward for these interventions quite quickly and in some people's eyes without adequate assessment or talking beforehand. And the then medical director of the entire Tavistock Trust conducted a review, if you like. He spoke to endocrinologists, he spoke to people in the service, in the wider trust. It was really thorough. And he called for lots of things. He called for better data collection. He said, we don't really know any of the outcomes of the young people we've seen so far, even though we've been going at that point, what, 15, 16 years. He said, we need to collect outcomes on those who go forward for the physical interventions. We need to collect data on those who don't. We need to collect data on how the young people who do go forward for physical interventions are using that time on the blocker. Is it that they're using it as time to think and explore their gender identity or is something else happening. And he identified this core, um, not disagreement, but sort of conflict, if you like, in the service surrounding the use of, of physical interventions, I suppose, and how quickly they should be provided. Who was responsible for it? Was it the mental health practitioners working in the service assessing the young people or was it ultimately the endocrinologists all kinds of things Um, and Dr David Taylor was the man who did the report he made a number of recommendations and frankly none of them were really taken forward Mm. Well in your book you talk about how in this report by Dr David Taylor uh, again this is the 2005 review um, that the pressure he talks about the pressure to provide puberty blockers um, became much more intense around that time. Where was the pressure coming from? It was coming from all quarters, really. It was coming from trans support groups, absolutely. But I think there's a danger that, especially here in the UK, that 
it's felt that all the pressure was coming from them alone. And that isn't the case. It was also coming from clinicians working with gender diverse young people in other countries, particularly in the Netherlands at that time, uh, some clinicians in the United States as well. And it was also, I'm told, coming from endocrinologists who obviously work with hormones in the body. And the pressure was saying, look, it appears at this moment in time, the Dutch are doing this thing where they're using puberty blockers in very highly screened young people who have this distress around their gender. And it appears that it could be a good intervention. So why aren't you doing it? That was the message, really. Hmm. Well, um, and also around this time, there began to be um, quite a significant rise in the number of referrals, right, to uh, the Tavistock Gender Service uh, in the UK. Um, We spoke with Dr. Anna Hutchinson, um, who, Hannah, you spoke to extensively for your book, and she was uh, part of the senior team at Tavistock between 2013 to 2017. Um, She went on maternity leave shortly joining, um, after joining the team, and then When she came back at the end of 2014, she had noticed that in that time, the number of referrals for hormone blockers had rapidly increased. I'd have the the referrals from the week on my desk, um, and it was very visceral. The the, the numbers were going up, you know, week to week, that pile of referrals would be getting remarkably uh, larger. Uh, So there was a sense of everybody was really busy trying to keep on top of, you know, the deadline. So at that time, we were aiming to see all new uh, young people within 18 weeks. Uh, and the team was just really running around trying to to meet the young people on time. So that's Dr. Anna Hutchinson. Uh, Hannah Barnes, if you could um, just sort of summarize, there was, some, there was a, also a growing chorus of concern coming from practitioners within the clinic at this time. What were those concerns? So what had happened at this point is that because of the pressure that we spoke about before coming from all quarters, JIDS had, the Gender Identity Development Service, JIDS, had started a research study to say, well, look, let, let's test this out for ourselves are the puberty blockers beneficial to a selective group of young people? And in 2014, they rolled out the early blocking of puberty as policy anyway, without waiting for that data. So that that's the context. So you've got the wider availability of puberty blockers at younger ages. At that point, there was, there was no actual lower age limit. It moved to a stage of puberty rather than, than age. And you had these referrals that, that Dr. Hutchinson speaks about really increasing at a very, very rapid rate. And in 2014, in fact, they were sticking to that um, that 18-week target. But as we went into 2015, that was the year that referrals actually doubled. And so they'd been increasing at 50% per year from 2009. They absolutely rocketed in 2015. They doubled. And at the same time, More and more young people were wanting this medical intervention. There was pressure on them to provide it. They were trying to get through the numbers. Caseloads were absolutely exploding. And a single clinician might have 100 families on their individual caseload. And to put that into some context, that would compare to, I'm told, around 20 to 30 in any other regular National Health Service setting. I see. Well, Hannah Barnes joins us today. She's the investigations producer at the BBC's, 
one of the BBC's flagship television news shows called Newsnight. And her new book is called Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. We'll have more when we come back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash OnPoint. That's Indeed.com slash OnPoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Hannah Barnes joins us today. She's the investigations producer at BBC Newsnight and author of the new book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. Now, Hannah, as you well realize, you're speaking to a a largely U.S. audience uh, in in this program here. And um, as I'm sure you know, the political situation um, uh, around the issue of care for uh, gender-questioning youth, uh, the political situation in this country is extreme, right? To the point where, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the the trans community legitimately has fears for, you know, existential fears. So I wanted to ask you briefly, um, it, for all that you spoke with many, many clinicians who worked um, at the Tavistock Center, were any of them, you know, even questioning the existence of trans identities or did they have some kind of, you know, political concern? What was their approach to the whole issue of uh, gender questioning youth? No, absolutely not. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to say that because really the motive, the motivation for these clinicians speaking out and, and raising concerns over many, many years, both within the service and then outside of it, was really the care of these young people who were often very vulnerable and very distressed. And what they were saying was, just as there appeared to them to be different ways perhaps into a young person's gender-related distress, then perhaps there needed to be different ways out of it. And they were seeing with that increase in referrals, a sort of increase in the complexity of the young people coming forward too. And often they were contending with so much more besides their gender identity difficulties. And that what was that's what was really worrying these clinicians. And at no point were they ever questioning these young people's identity or that trans people exist. Of course they do. And that's absolutely not anything that is questioned in the book. And I've spoken to trans people, their stories, their successful transition stories are are in the book too. It's just that it was felt that the way the Gender Identity Development Service was practising was risky 
and that perhaps a one-size-fits-all approach, a referral for puberty-blocking medication, wasn't the safest route nor the best one for each and every one of those young people, both for whom, you know, it will benefit and we have to provide the best care for them and we also have to provide care for those for whom it won't. Mm. Okay, so um, we spoke with uh, Dr. Uh, Hutchinson, who we heard from earlier. We'll hear a little bit more from her in a, in a moment. But we also spoke with Dr. Marcy Bowers. Uh, she's a leading um, OBGYN in gender-affirming surgical care. And Dr. Bowers is also the president of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, or WPATH. And she told us that uh, what happened at the Tavistock Clinic in a sense, shouldn't have been a surprise because of that really big spike, that increasing demand for this kind of service. Like anything that expands rapidly, sometimes uh, we uh, see health systems overrun, and this is the case as it is in Tavistock. Uh, they were, they saw referrals rise. I think there were like 250 in, uh, in uh, I believe it was uh, uh, 2012, and. Uh, and then in the last two years, they were over 5,000 referrals for gender-related care. We'll hear more from uh, Dr. Bowers a little later in the show. But on that point of the trying to manage that massive rise of referrals, here's Dr. Anna Hutchinson again, who worked at the Tavistock Center. Um, and she told us, as she told you as well, Hannah, that for some young people and their families, once they were on hormone blockers, they would actually disengage from the service, no longer come to Tavistock. Uh, but for others who wanted to explore potential consequences of continuing to cross sex hormones? We as a service weren't providing any therapeutic space to explore identity once the young people were on the blockers. So it's so it, I was, you know, beginning to really worry that the blockers themselves were uh, possibly and inadvertently shutting down options rather than opening them up. Dr. Hutchinson also talked about concerns over the lack of data being collected um, on the patients and the services and their effectiveness that were being provided to young people. And she said that one piece of early data, in fact, did find that most people who were on puberty blockers had proceeded on to cross sex hormones. And Dr. Hutchinson told us that concerned her. You know, I was being asked to sign off on something and I wasn't sure it was, it was in their long-term best interests um, because there wasn't the data there. But I was beginning to think, okay, so if a young person blocks their puberty early in adolescence and then proceeds to cross sex hormones and may, maybe or maybe not surgery uh, later on in life and then it doesn't work out for them because, you know, some of these kids were telling us their identity was fluid. You know, we know that. Um my concern was, what would that be like for them? You know, and it suddenly felt like we had to make a huge sort of cost-benefit analysis. So Hannah Barnes, um, help us understand how this happened. Because as you said earlier, the, the Tavistock Center's own internal um, studies and audits from 2000 and 2005 found that, um, you know, perhaps a very small percentage of young people would go on at that time to uh, take puberty blockers and then cross, uh, uh, cross-sex hormones. Um, and then most of the other children coming to the center would have hopefully been able to access treatments to, uh, to assist whatever their other core needs were. 
But it sounds like later on, there was this rush to puberty blockers. And then, as Dr. Hutchinson said, to cross, onto cross-sex hormones. I mean, I don't quite understand what, uh, how, how the Tavistock Center got caught up in all that. I think that's a really difficult question to answer definitively. Yeah. I mean, I'll do, but I think, you know, it, it, it depends who you ask. I mean, I've spoken to dozens of clinicians and they'll give you slightly different reasons, but I think there are a number of factors that explain how things went wrong. And I think it's difficult to deny that things have gone wrong. Partly it's about numbers, as Dr. Bauer said, but it really can't explain it all. And I don't think anyone I spoke to would say it was just that we had too many young people coming forward. Of course, there was huge pressure as the numbers really uh, increased very, very dramatically. But it's, it can't just be put down to the numbers. What happened was there were... As, as one would expect in, in sort of areas of medicine. When new data comes to light that questions the way you think an intervention is working, that should prompt, uh, you know, that should provide pause for thought. And I think what Dr. Hutchinson, what she told me certainly is when that data came back, that early data that showed that at that point, every single one of the young people who'd started on puberty blockers had chosen to go on to cross-sex hormones. That kind of exploded this idea that the puberty blockers were providing time and space to think. Because as she puts it in the book, what are the chances of every single young person with their very different needs and backgrounds given time to think and all and all thinking in the same way? And JIDS would counter that and say, well, these people that we chose were the ones that we thought we're most likely to transition, so it's not surprising. And we picked those who were the most distressed and, and whose gender-related distress was, was very lasting and had, and had you know, been going on for years, and we do very thorough assessments. But the difficulty with that is that I have clinicians who have spoken to me bravely on the record who say, actually, our assessments weren't always very good. They weren't always very thorough. They could be two, three sessions. And I've taken part in those. So it's just not the case that, that each and every one of those young people going forward for the blocker was subject to uh, a very detailed assessment and had, uh, you know, lifelong gender dysphoria. And I think what, what Jid saw, what, what they did was they started to apply an albeit quite limited evidence base from these two early Dutch studies, which only allowed young people who had lifelong gender dysphoria, a very stable, supportive environment in which they lived, and who were psychologically stable. They applied that to a completely different cohort of young people. Mm -hmm. And they, they, they didn't pause to reflect on, on what was happening. Um, I think at the same time, not all of this was their fault. There was very limited oversight, if any, from the central national health service that was commissioning them. It's something that the independent review, which you referred to right at the beginning, has commenting on that, that this, this clinical approach has not been subjected to some of the usual control measures that are typically applied when new or innovative innovative treatments are offered. It just didn't happen mm. here. And a further aspect was that JIDS would say that they were only there. Their job, if you like, was to tackle and address a young person's gender difficulties. All the other things that they might be struggling with at the same time should have been dealt with by local 
mental health services. And that didn't happen. And that's because those services themselves were completely overwhelmed. They had their budgets cut. So there was a whole host of reasons why the model wasn't working. Um, and as Dr. Hutchinson said in one of those clips, not only was the rationale for the blocker exploded in terms of everyone was thinking the same way, but actually JIDS didn't provide any opportunity for those young people to use that time to to actually explore their gender identity. Rather than increase the number of appointments, they became very few and far between. And, and as, as she said, people would, would skip them. So mm. they might only check in twice a year. Mm. Now, I want to just clarify something for people who aren't familiar with it, um, Hannah, because you mentioned this, this Dutch study, which it comes mm. up rather frequently um, in discussions about um, care for gender questioning youth. The, the Dutch study was one that was done, um, I believe the cohort was almost, was mostly um, uh, people who were born male, right? And then as you had you specified, they had long-term gender dysphoria or gender questioning um, mental status and no other concurrent mental health issues, right? And and it's those it's that group of young people then who were put on um, puberty blockers and later on, I believe, cross-sex hormones as well and had largely positive outcomes, correct? Correct. I mean, there were there were girls as well. Okay. I think the majority the majority were male, but 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 not the overwhelming majority. Okay. And and you're right that the, the these Dutch studies these form the basis really of all gender affirmative medicine, pediatric medicine taking place across the world today in gender clinics, both in the United States, here in the UK, and and in the rest of Europe. And those young people had to be screened in the way that I've suggested, but also they received ongoing talking therapies at the same time. And and those studies themselves have, you know, they're not the be all and end all. They're the best that we have in terms of longitudinal data. Um, we're awaiting actually an update on those, th those very first group of young people who received puberty blockers, then cross-sex hormones and then surgery. And those were the criteria. So actually there were two studies of the same group of people, but we lost 15 out of 70 by the time we got to the second one, one of whom actually died yeah. um, tragically um, during um, gender reassignment surgery. And and a close look of those studies really calls into to question how robust they are. But but yes, so this this arguably limited evidence base has been used as the basis for gender affirmative care in young people. But applying, you know, it did apply to quite a different group of young people than the ones we see today. Right. And the, 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 one of the key differences is all those the concurrent um, other mental health issues. Now, let yeah, me... Yeah, but also, sorry to interrupt, but, no, but also the fact that we have this it's been witnessed in every single gender clinic across the world, this preponderance of females now, but, but not just females, but females whose gender-related distress only started in adolescence mm -hmm. or after the onset of puberty. And that absolutely was not the presentation of those young people in the Dutch study. And we're also applying this uh, evidence base, if you like, to young people who identify as non-binary, as, as, as other gender identities. And again... There was no evidence for that whatsoever. Mm. 
Uh, Hannah, I appreciate that that clarification because it's impo- it's an important part of the overall story and, and especially regarding what uh, later on then um, happened uh, at the Tavistock Center. I want to hear a little bit more from Dr. Anne Hutchinson um, because, again, this lack of data uh, it comes up as a re- as a regular concern. Um, and Dr. Hutchinson says that uh, it, in fact, there wasn't even clear evidence about the outcomes or, or or the long-term um, outcomes uh, of some of the the procedures and medications that the young people were taking about whether or not they were successful. Once they were referred on to adult services or they left the service, whether they left because they decided not to go down the medical pathway or, or any other reason, we didn't have data on any of those young people. We didn't have any outcome data when I was there. Um, we had only had the data of those who were within the service. And you know, what was striking about the early intervention study was that the patient satisfaction was high, um, but the clinical outcome measures were not particularly positive uh, in terms of reduced distress or reduced uh, dysphoria. Hannah Barnes, um, people like Dr. Hutchinson and others that you uh, interviewed extensively for the book had been raising concerns internally for some time. But what finally um, triggered that uh, independent commission that the NHS um, called for uh, a couple of years ago? A number of things, I think. Um, so Dr. Hutchinson was one of 10 members of staff who took, who took their concerns to uh, a then... He's a very senior psychiatrist at the Trust. He's now retired, called Dr. David Bell. And he, he wrote a report in 2018. And it was really when that was leaked to the media and it, in 2019 and we heard some of these concerns and they were very, very serious that clinicians had that really things started to to sort of gain momentum and we started looking at this for BBC Newsnight in, in 2019 and our reporting certainly prompted a inspection of the service by uh, the healthcare regulator in England which then rated the service inadequate. The some ju- some court proceedings were instigated against the Tavistock by a young woman who's who transitioned and then detransitioned called Kira Bell, um, and that really brought the world's attention on onto Jids, if you like, in a way that never had been before, and it really highlighted this absence of of data. And I think it got to the point where. NHS England just couldn't avoid tackling it head on. They had to do something. And that's what led to the independently commissioned report. Well, when we come back from a quick break, we'll talk about what the report's findings were. Hannah Barnes, stand by. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. 
Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Hannah Barnes joins us today. She's investigations producer at BBC Newsnight and author of the new book, Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children. So Hannah Barnes, I had mentioned um, at the top of the show the independent report that was commissioned by the NHS, and I believe the, an interim report was published in March of 2022 that found that the type of care provided uh, at Tavistock was not a safe or viable long-term option for young people with gender-related distress. This is the CAST report. So can you tell us a little bit more about what it found? Well, interestingly, it's it vindicated, I don't know if that's the right word, but it vindicated what so many clinicians had been saying for for years and who hadn't been listened to. So it, uh, Dr. Cass acknowledged that there was an issue of what she called diagnostic overshadowing. So this was where a young person who may have multiple coexisting difficulties, but who had gender-related difficulties as well, once the word gender was mentioned, everything else got parked, if you like. It wasn't dealt with. So she would call this diagnostic overshadowing. And she said, this is just not good enough, that young people with gender-related distress aren't being given the, the, the same amount of care and attention that any other young person would. She said, this, is, this has got to change. She talked about a real lack of consensus amongst clinicians working in the service. She said there were completely different views within the staff group, some more strongly affirmative and some much more cautious when it came to the use of physical interventions. Again, this is something that clinicians have been talking about for for years and, and you know, that, that might be problematic. I mean, it's quite striking that in the Leeds, uh, the, the, the site that JIDS had in the north of England, there were clinicians whose approaches, if you like, were seemed uh, were deemed to be so incompatible that they, that they couldn't work together with with any given family, which is which is quite striking. They found, uh, sorry, Dr. Cass found that the service was providing a predominantly affirmative, non-exploratory approach, often driven by. A family's expectations and and how far or not the the young person had gone in a social transition prior to starting the service. She found that, as you've mentioned several times, that there had not been routine and consistent data collection in the service. Um, you know, so many and and that actually it was still difficult writing in 2022 for staff to raise concerns about the service. Now, she she absolutely acknowledged, and, and I do throughout the book, and even the regulator who rated the service inadequate acknowledged that the staff at the service care about these young people greatly. That has never been called into question. But one clinic dealing with a nation's distressed children could not work. Uh, and there's been a temptation amongst some in the trans community in particular here to say that all that Dr. Cass said is that we need more services and we can't have one clinic. But I think really in any reading of that report, 
highlights a certain number of difficulties that the service is explaining. Uh, and, and she talks about the lack of evidence base as well, particularly for this cohort of young people that we're seeing in gender clinics across the world who are predominantly female, whose gender-related distress started in adolescence and who have multiple other uh, mental health problems. And she said that's, that's the group which are greatest in number, but actually for whom we hold the least data and the data we have is not... Mm. Uh, persuasive. Mm. And so as a result of the the CAS report, the NHS decided to um, close down. I don't know if that's the right word, but... The, the well, tab- it's still open. It's, it's open. still open, yeah. yeah. So the so, decision yeah, you're was right. what? They decided to close... Well, they decided that, you know, when one of the country's most respected and senior paediatricians says, we need a fundamentally different service model, then the NHS has listened to Dr. Cass and that's what they're trying to do now. So it it made the announcement in summer 2022 that JIDS would close and be replaced um, initially by two, but the plan is to, 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 to have more, but regional services, which would be far more holistic, if you like, in their approach, taking in all aspects of a young person And it's acknowledging the work that has been done as part of Dr. Cass's review, looking at the evidence base for both puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And what those systematic reviews have shown is that really the evidence base is wanting and it's not clear really the benefits and harms of those treatments and whether one outweighs the other. So going forward and these new services are not ready yet and the plan was to close JIDS in the spring and that isn't going to happen Um, but the plan is that no one plans to take away it seems obviously um, the option of transitioning for young people Um, we talked about this really early on it's not about denying healthcare it's about making it better Mm -hmm. for each and every one person but Dr Cass has said look we have to plug these gaps in the evidence base because they're big and so the plan, it seems, that we haven't heard the final details yet, is that puberty blockers will still be available to young people after a, a, a decent assessment, but they will have to be enrolled on a research programme to try and get some better data, some long-term data. And crucially, what Dr Cass has said and what these new services going forward will will offer is different treatment pathways because she has said that not one approach is going to benefit each and every young person experiencing gender-related distress or gender dysphoria. Um, You know, physical interventions for some, yes, but that won't benefit Mm. everybody. And we need to care for those people too. Mm. Well, in fact, uh, Dr. Marcy Bowers, uh, again, currently the president of the World Professional Association for Transgender Health um, and uh, a leading surgeon, OBGYN, in gender-affirming care, uh, she told us that she sees it very similarly, that this is a moment um, sort of uh, accelerated by the CAS report that should encourage and allow an improvement in care for gender um, questioning young people. And here's what Dr. Bowers told us. It's a supportive environment where ongoing evaluation continues. And if they meet certain criteria entering adolescence, at that point, a decision would be made as to whether or not they would be candidates to have Uh, puberty blockade. And uh, we have to be mindful that ultimately it has to be informed consent and it has to be a volitional decision on the part of the child. 
So that's Dr. Marcy Bowers talking about what um, improved care for gender questioning young people ought to look like. Now, Hannah, if you could just listen along with me for a minute, we have to acknowledge that obviously uh, the the question about what should care for young people uh, entail is very, very, very urgent here in the United States. Um, and we recently spoke with Jamie Reed. She's a former case manager at the Washington University Transgender Center at St. Louis Children's Hospital. And earlier this year, she used Missouri's whistleblower statute to raise public concerns about the care she saw children receive at the Washington University Center. And she closely tracked the cases of at least 600 children. And some of her concerns mirror what... uh, what we've been hearing uh, about what was happening at the Tavistock Center, both reported by Hannah Barnes and in that independent review as well. Reed talked about a lack of consensus amongst care providers at the St. Louis Center about the best standards of practice for treating gender-questioning youth. The documents that I believe the doctors were working under were routinely cast aside and considered on some level suggestions which from a medical perspective felt like it was whatever the doctor decides that 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 day and time goes. And there was no operating framework or guideline to provide this care. Reed also says the Washington University Center lacked appropriate resources to provide comprehensive mental health care for its patients. So the center provides some basic mental health medications for real basic for some patients for depression and anxiety. But that's if you get scheduled with that certain provider. The system as a whole did not actually put in place the necessary care availability for patients. And Reed says that while some patients may have received longer-term mental health support, for others that was not the case. There were some letters that had one visit. And I do not believe that the quality standard of care to medicalize a child with interventions that are lifelong, that can impact their fertility for life, that the quality of care is two visits with a kid. Jamie Reed herself identifies as a queer woman. She is married to a trans man and says that she firmly supports trans rights and has previous experience working with trans youth in clinical environments. She says her concerns, though, were not taken seriously by leadership at the Washington University Center. Part of the problem with this kind of care right now is it's become so, like, it's become this huge extreme thing where you you can't say anything questioning this care without, I mean, I've basically been told that, you know, I'm going to be like responsible for children's deaths. You cannot question a care model. And that is not how medicine is supposed to work. Medical staff are supposed to be the people in the room with the doctors who see things going on and have the backup of the medical institution to be able to say, hey, pause, time out, something's not going right here, without being absolutely vilified from every angle. 
That's part of our conversation with Jamie Reed, and a longer version will be available in our podcast feed later this week. Now, following Reed's accusations, Missouri's Republican Attorney General Andrew Bailey launched an investigation into the facility at Washington University, and as a result, Washington University is not commenting. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch and Missouri Independent have spoken with families who report positive experiences at the center. So we have links to those stories and to Reed's sworn affidavit, both at onpointradio.org. Now, Hannah Barnes, um, again, just to put a, a, a fine point on it, here in the United States right now, we're in a political environment where, you know, in some places like Florida, they're even, you know, the legislature there is considering violating people's First Amendment rights by banning preferred pronouns. We have other states in the United States, Tennessee, Texas, more, who are contemplating making seeking care for gender-questioning youth um, equivalent to child abuse. So we have parents who are concerned about their children being taken away from them. So it does very much feel like a an existential threat, as I said earlier, to members of the trans community. I'm wondering what the political environment around this issue of gender, quote-unquote, gender-affirming care is like in the United Kingdom. Well, fortunately, not like that. <laughs> not, I, I mean, that that's appalling, isn't it? And and as Jamie Reid said, there's so many things, you know, so many parallels with, with what clinicians have, have said and uh, have told me about their time at, at the Tavistock. And I think, I hope that, that, that books like mine, that testimony like Jamie Reed's and like Anna Hutchinson and others, and, and of course, leading, um, you know, trans doctors themselves, like Marcy Bowers and the position she has as the president of WPATH. Everybody wants, everybody working in this field really wants the same thing, which is the best care possible for each and every one of those young people, uh, making transition as, as safe and positive as possible for those for whom it will be the right option and preventing those for whom it won't be going down that path um, and, and making their lives better as well. And it's about having a calm conversation where you can question the standard of care being provided to a group of young people um, without questioning them themselves, without questioning their identity or their rights and doing that without being vilified and for those concerns to be taken in the spirit in which they're intended, which is from concerned mental health practitioners or clinicians who have dedicated their entire working lives to helping young people. Mm. It's, it's, it's just not credible to write them off as, as transphobic but we are fortunate here in the UK it's obviously very heated as well but we don't have laws going through our parliament or even proposed that pronouns shouldn't be respected right. or that all care be taken away. Well, let me, so I, I really appreciate the way you put it. To We, we can perhaps, it's right to uh, ask questions, reasonable questions about standard of care, but not question um, how people are feeling individually within themselves. We have about a minute and a half to go, Hannah, though. I... Uh, I had read that you, even though, I mean, you had done a deep investigation of this for both BBC and uh, for your book, um, but I understand that you had trouble finding a publisher or even uh, someone to do the cover art for your book. Is that right? The cover art thing is a bit of a misnomer, okay. but yes, it's, 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 uh, it's been widely reported here in the UK that the proposal, which was very detailed in itself, and we'd been looking at this together, my, my colleague Deborah Cohen and I for Newsnight for 
well, close to two years. I wrote a 17,000 word book proposal and it, it was rejected by 22 publishers. Um, and interestingly, the responses didn't, they weren't negative. They didn't say, no, this is, this is something we don't want to do. Just really, this is an important story, but, but not for us. And actually, almost half didn't reply at all, which I've been told by my very experienced agent is is almost unheard of to, to get a rate of, you know, almost a half of non-responses. I mean, you'd expect 90% to, to reply. So it was uh, it was pretty demoralising for a while, but fortunately, Swift Press, 23rd publisher, did want to take it on and, and I'm delighted that they have and it's a Sunday Times bestseller. So I'm, I'm really grateful to everyone that's, that's read it and bought it. And for the people who spoke with you uh, both oh absolutely yeah there'll be no book without any of those people and particularly the young people who went through JIDS both those who had a great experience and are happily transitioned Mm. and those who didn't and frankly have been harmed and and those clinicians as well and I'm, I'm so grateful to each and every one of them well Hannah Barnes the new book is Time to Think the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service for children Hannah thank you so much for joining us today Thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.